Canada has great resources. We're recognized globally for our minerals, metals, and rare earth elements that offer the world answers to their questions about cleaner and more sustainable energy. But we also have our homework to do. Our dwellings, our workplaces, our brick and mortars, our architecture all need a touch up. When we plan, it must be with green intent. Welcome to our third episode of The Edge of Energy, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Buildings consume vast amounts of our natural resources. They also contribute highly to climate change. 17% of Canada's emissions come from residential, commercial, and institutional buildings, making this an important area of opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas. While looking at the blueprints, choosing the materials, thinking about financing, we must also consider the building blocks that will stand the test of time. These include passive architecture, participatory design, and inclusive cities. Leslie Wu is the Chief Executive Officer of Civic Action. Leslie, thanks for joining us on the show this week. Delighted to be here. Civic Action brings together senior executives from basically every level of government, from different sectors, from across the region. They also bring rising leaders. And at the table, all of these folks work to tackle some of our biggest challenges. Is it safe to say, Leslie, that we can put climate change at the top of that list? I wouldn't say that it is a new challenge. It's Civic Action as an organization that has been working very hard to address urban challenges for the last 18 years we need to ask ourselves who's being impacted and who's going to benefit and how can we make sure that as we think about all the investments in technology and in retrofitting and resilience, and those are all really important pieces, but if we don't keep people at the center of what we're thinking, if we don't think about how all facets of our cities are, how they're being impacted now and how they're going to benefit we know from our discussion with our networks, which are multi-sector, public sector, private, not-for-profit, we know we will leave people behind. And so I think as we have faced the challenge, even in our own thinking, we've evolved as an organization. When we have this dialogue with emerging leaders, C-suite folks up on the glass towers, we have come to this realization that we have to take a much greater 360 view of how we think about climate change. What are inclusive cities? You know, it's interesting. When I personally think about an inclusive city, I just think about my own experience coming to Canada. I grew up in the Caribbean in Trinidad and coming here where everything is foreign and wanting to belong. I think at the core of everyone, no matter where you are, whether you're born here or not born here, you want to know that where you live, where you work, where you play, you're not an outsider. Inclusion for me in an inclusive city is one where everyone, their uniqueness is valued, where everyone has a sense of belonging, and that we value all what people need and, and the contributions that they make in an equal way. And so that takes place in so many different dimensions. I think we traditionally think about the spatial component of inclusion. Do we have public space that allows everybody in? Do we have community centers that are welcoming? But there's social inclusion and economic inclusion, my ability to participate in the economy and have a job that gives me a quality of life I need. And so 
when we think about inclusion, it's about all the systems and it's not dissimilar than when we think about climate change. It's all about the different systems that we have to address. So the convergence of those two is a natural thing. The Race to Reduce mobilized the commercial office sector to reduce energy use and carbon emissions while saving millions of dollars in costs. That's a great headline, but take us through some of the heavy lifting. What does that look like on the ground? So I think what I'll reference, because I am a big believer, there is a way forward. And 10 years ago, Civic Action initiated within the downtown core of Toronto an initiative, we called it Race to Reduce. And it was at a time where there were no strong standards, there were no strong incentives. There was not a lot of leadership around the importance of the fact that this large mass of buildings, well-maintained, fairly new, were ignoring the fact that energy was just spewing out, wasted, which was for Bay Street, downtown Toronto Financial District, translates into dollars. So we brought these folks together. We identified some key leaders who would take on the challenge, set targets, began to sort of identify common metrics that they could work from collaboratively, independent of government legislation or requirements. And in the space of four years, with that mindset, with that leadership, with that data and analytics, where we set a target to reduce by 10% in terms of energy reduction, that collaborative exceeded their target to reduce energy by 12.1%, and equivalent to something like taking 4,200 cars off the road. That sprung a whole series of other initiatives that downtown business associations and Manitoba Hydro got involved and BOMA Quebec. So we catalyze this movement to do this in this space. If we can do that with that kind of energy, that kind of leadership and that kind of determination, it can equally happen in other places, in the towers that we're talking about. And I think there has been some movement in the city of Toronto on the uh, tower block initiatives. I think we've lost a little bit of, pardon the pun, a little bit of steam in putting our energy towards that. And I was just reviewing Graham Stewart's work on tower block. Uh, he did an enormous amount of work and research and data around that. And it's still fresh today. I think we made a step forward when we were all focused on it at that period in time. But with like so many things, if we don't sustain it, we fall behind again. Zara Ibrahim, you're a leader who's been working to shift power at the intersection of cities, equity, and design. Also, you happen to be uh, my business partner with the firm Monumental. So great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Go. Why? Why are you working hard at this? Were there indicators that gears needed changing? Was there no alignment before? Yeah, I mean, we're building on what was here before, right? And continuing to carry the work forward. So I in no ways want to take credit for this work, but I think that an ongoing stewardship is required because... This idea of community participation, this idea of democratizing process, this idea of more meaningfully and in an ongoing, consistent way, bringing community voice into decision-making processes still is not ubiquitous. We see so many decisions about, you know, and I know we're talking about energy and climate, but even any kind of infrastructure, it's always 
community is engaged at specific and strategic points versus co-creators and stewards together. And so I think we see this now, right, in what's been happening with COVID-19 and how the public health infrastructure is inadequate to serve some of these communities. And it's because they weren't engaged in the process of designing it and delivering it and distributing it and making sure it was equitably distributed. So my work very much builds on sort of exactly those intersections, Kofi, that you talked about, and the wisdom sort of that emerged out of all of those places over the over many, many decades. What is participatory design? How does or how could this help with climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, it's a focus on the who, not the what, right? So I think that a lot of processes focus on outcomes and participatory design consistently focuses on creating spaces where folks who are most impacted by decisions can be engaged in the decision-making on their terms. So you'd know it when you saw it if you're sitting at a table and you're getting diverse perspectives <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a particular decision. You're getting positive tension. You're getting critical discourse. And I feel that you'd know it when you see it because the processes are slower. Sometimes they're messier and they're not as linear, right? A lot of decision-making processes fall in a sort of tidy line. We need to do research, we need to validate, then we need to make a plan, and then we need to implement. Versus a participatory design process has these feedback loops built in all the way along. So you know it because it takes a little longer at the start to build trust between communities and institutions, between organizations and individuals. But once that trust is built, things can move fast. The Toronto Green Standard is Toronto's sustainable design requirement for new private and city-owned developments. Finn McDonald is no stranger to carbon design and operations. Thanks for sitting in with us today, Finn. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. You have experience with leadership in energy and environmental design. Perhaps you can share its progress? What version are we on now? Have all the intentions come to fruition? Do we still have work to do? The LEED rating system has been around in Canada for almost 20 years now, and it's amazing to see the growth. Uh, we have certified over 700 million square feet of, of space in Canada as the Canada Green Building Council. And if you think about some of the early requirements for LEED, particularly around paint, right? Uh, having paint that doesn't have fumes that make you sick when you breathe it in. 20 years ago, you couldn't even find that paint it had to be imported in order to meet those requirements. Now I don't even think you can buy paint that's not compliant. And the LEED rating system is a very holistic rating system. And when I say that, I mean it covers all aspects of building health and wellness and energy and emissions. So you have everything from, from how good the air is that you breathe to how healthy your occupants are, to the energy use of the building, to the water use of the building. And it provides this really great framework and design compass for design teams and the lead name is no coincidence. It's been leading the industry down this path for quite some time, though. And when I think about the context in Canada, climate change is a global problem. The solutions sometimes are regional. And that's why we developed the Zero Carbon Building Standard in Canada to take a look at the Canadian context and provide this supplemental standard to lead that can really hone in on the carbon and reduce the carbon from emissions, not just the operations, but the materials, too. What does that change for people in the surrounding dense communities? How are retrofits and multi-residential buildings being affected and addressed? So in the context of green standards, I started my career at the time of LEED. 
And one of the things that was so remarkable was that it was such a thoughtful, detailed <laughs> offer to the building community. Lead was well-intended and had a couple sort of core issues. One was that it didn't address social inequities. I didn't have any measure of how to sort of advance and bridge divides in our communities and our cities. And the second was that there's no accountability. There was no accountability. That is changing. I think that was always, I mean, that's the issue I've seen with the B Corp movement as well, right? It's in all of these great standards. It's really falling on well-intentioned people who get very busy <laughs> and don't always sort of live up to those accountabilities. But then yet, then this is where we get greenwashing and purpose washing and all those different things, right? And so I think where with the green standards today, and I don't follow them as closely as I did before, I imagine that there's more accountability, but the piece that I'm always coming back to is that we don't make places once, we continually remake them. And so how do we think about governance, right? And especially when it comes to things like green standards, when our context changes, when the inequities change, when the climate conditions change, who is governing and saying, does this still work? Does this still hold up? Do these standards still hold? And so, you know, so much of what I do is like hugging a cloud. It's so intangible, <laughs> but it matters. And this is the social infrastructure piece, right? This is when we say social infrastructure, what we actually mean is who is sitting at the governance table to evaluate on an ongoing basis whether or not something is working. And if it is, that's great. And if it's not, bringing in the right folks to understand and then to design together and to acknowledge, and this is the language of design, acknowledge that most of what we put out is a prototype. And the mindset of prototype means that we are constantly looking for places to learn and assuming that the environment constantly changes and is not static. And so therefore we have to constantly be learning. And so this is sort of my wish for any standard, whether it be around B Corp standard or a LEED standard or a green building standard, of any kind is that we build in this shared governance and, and this shared accountability. And this is where I can reference Eleanor Ostrom, the economist, Sheila Foster at Georgetown, who have been thinking about sort of the mechanics of actually what happens when people come to the table and how do you facilitate that shared ownership. You know, there's there's a there's a lot of people that need to be in that room, but usually it's just the architect and one or two other trade specialties or or sorry, design specialties, structural and and I I don't know what the answer to that is. It should be a crowded room if you let everyone in who needs to be there. The lead rating system has got something called integrated design in it and a requirement for an integrated design meeting to be held which is supposed to get a lot of people together for a meeting really early on in the project to sort of set goals and expectations. I would say that that is far from being industry standard. And when we did the zero carbon pilot program, all of the pilot projects we had told me that getting the right people together early in the project and making sure they were able to communicate with each other was vital to the success of the project. To increase the energy efficiency of a building, a variety of active and passive design strategies can be incorporated. Can you explain these two considerations? So when you talk about active and passive strategies, passive strategies, you're really talking about how good of a building do you build, right? And active strategies is the equipment that goes in your building. So if you think about heating, 
if I say, well, maybe before I start installing really good heat pumps and things like that to heat my building, maybe I should make sure my walls are built really good, lots of insulation, air sealing, so I can keep the heat in, then I need less heat pumps. The same is also true about natural lighting. So I can go and I can install really high efficient LED lights, or as a first step, I could orientate my building towards the sun, put some windows on the south side and let lots of natural light in, right? Those are passive strategies. The active ones come next. They're absolutely important to get to zero impact, but we have to do the passive ones first because load reduction before you start worrying about energy efficiency is just good design. The Toronto Green Standard is Toronto's sustainable design requirements for new private and city-owned developments. There's a notion that as these phase in, there will no longer be a space for gas heating. Options like geothermal and other clean energy technologies will be key components in large, multi-unit residential and commercial projects being planned in Toronto and the surrounding regions. Do you share this view? How are retrofits being addressed? So at a very macro scale, we think about it there. At a very local scale here in this region, we know for a fact that one in three low-income families are generally the ones living in the apartment towers that were built in the 60s and 70s. And these are buildings that are disproportionately vulnerable to things like extreme heat and power shortages because of the fact they have not been designed to a standard that even begins to know what resilience is about. And you couple that with the fact that those same communities here in this region, their residents who are vulnerable are much less likely to participate in all the civic processes and decision-making and dialogue about how we prioritize what's important in terms of how we spend our money. And so on these two scales, we're trying really hard to help everyone understand the connectivity between the decisions that happen at the macro scale and the decisions that happen at the local scale. We've been studying retrofits pretty carefully, and we know that there's a tremendous lift that needs to happen in the market in order to get these buildings to zero, and time is running out. What we need to get the industry to stop thinking about is this business as usual, right? We have to Instead of just worrying about incremental improvement and doing whatever makes financial sense, we have to sort of accept the new reality that we're going to have to make big investments in our assets in order to make them net zero. And this means that we have to start thinking about what's the most cost-effective way to meet our goal. And the goal is net zero. The goal is not business as usual, right? Because business as usual does not end well for anybody. So I think from our perspective at the Canada Green Building Council, we want to change the way buildings retrofit. Uh, We want to provide project teams with the tools to identify the buildings that are the biggest opportunity for them so they can do those first. We want to help them identify when the right time to do the other buildings is and help make sure that governments understand what sort of policy and programs are, are going to be needed to drive what we like to call zero carbon retrofits, right? These ones that get you all the way to zero, not just do what may make financial sense today. The long-term benefit of clean energy is obvious, but the upfront expenses for these changes, they still seem pretty high. Is this a major challenge or have the incentives been baked in? So solar panels, uh, on-site renewable energy, there is an upfront cost with that. It's going to pay dividends over over the project life, but somebody has to shoulder that cost up front, right? It, it's not the same as purchasing electricity from your utility. Rather, you're you're spending a large chunk of money 
up front and you're getting free energy. It's the same thing if you go and drill geothermal. You're spending a lot of money up front, but you're getting return on that. But there are ways to finance that. There's arrangements you can enter with, with a service provider where you pay for the renewable energy or you pay for the the heat that comes from the geothermal system so you don't have to pay those upfront costs but we've studied this and in, in, in our making the case for building to zero carbon what we found was that geothermal and renewable energy they have a positive net present value everywhere in this country so if you have the money to invest and you're going to hold on to the asset there's a business case to be made for doing those things right now today they don't necessarily need incentives to be cost viable. Where they do need incentives is in the case where you may not be holding on to the asset the whole time, or it may not be compatible with your business model to have a long payback like that. Governments can come in and provide incentives that can help bridge that gap. Of course, you're going to get pushback, and I understand and appreciate it. When you say that we're investing $3 billion in green infrastructure, and a lot of it you can't even see, right? It doesn't even affect your data. You can't see it every day. My house doesn't change. It's not so visible. And so you have to make the future of the past for people, right? You have to, you actually have to give folks some tangibility and some connection to the things that they've been asking for, or of course you're going to get resistance. So I think we need to do a much better job of integrating the agendas. And that's, that's something that we're just generally not good at. Right? Like this pandemic has showed us that we live in a system. Everything is interdependent. Our liberation is bound, you know? And the more that we come to embrace that idea that all of these systems are connected, then we'll start to get the support. And I think we build trust by making people feel seen. And sometimes making people feel seen is helping them see the manifestation of their asks, of challenges addressed in their day to day lives. And I think climate infrastructure can do that. We just have to think a little bit deeper and bring people to the table um, and ask them what it's going to mean to feel the impact of the infrastructure. And we don't do that enough. Is there a way to frame investments to align with the market transformation roadmap that has been supported by provincial governments across the country? If you had to plan this, where would you start? So when an asset manager has a building that they want to improve over time, one thing that they'll have to do is develop a zero carbon transition plan. And this means going through the building and identifying all of the sources of fossil fuels, uh, what sort of electric powered equipment can be used to replace that, and then what other changes do you need to make to the building in order to enable those changes to be made. So an example of that is if I want to install heat pumps, I might have to improve my walls, windows, insulation materials, things like that, before the heat pumps will be able to work. Now, this analysis is going to identify a number of things that are going to have to happen. The challenge is, if you were to go and do that all today, it would it would be cost prohibitive. And sometimes the changes we make to a building to reduce the carbon emissions, they don't always result in energy savings. So the idea is you have to pair those with what we like to call natural intervention points. So times when you're already going into that building to make changes. Now an asset manager has got a capital plan for a building. They know how long the boilers are going to last. They know how long the walls are going to last. They know when they need to replace their equipment. So the the challenge is to go and identify the equipment that needs to be replaced, what you're going to replace it with, when you're going to replace it already, and plan for that. You have to be proactive. You also have to make sure you have the other improvements done to the buildings to enable the heat pumps, such as better insulation or air sealing or things like that. 
bring others in to your decision making, into your thinking, and to have an openness of mind. Thinking about how Indigenous communities, for example, their concept and culture of stature by giving away, not stature by accumulating. That's a, just a whole different mindset. And if you can't even begin to understand that that is actually a viable way of thinking, it's going to be really hard. And then practically speaking, there are things such as if we're going to invest in infrastructure and we're going to make requirements of how that money is going to be spent, if we do not put criteria around who's benefiting from the jobs that are generated or what requirements do we make about the supply chain that you're going to require when you procure a piece of technology or a piece of vehicle or um, when if we don't uh, consider that policies we make, the land use policies we make, don't make requirements about specific policies or procedures or work plans around diversity and equity inclusion as part of how you're addressing it in your land use planning. All those things together are what will move us forward. We feel there are some really practical ways that government can step forward. I think there's practical ways private sector can step forward and not-for-profits can step forward and individuals. So I am incredibly hopeful because at this very moment in time, more than any time in history, perhaps for this city and this country, there's a wind of opportunity and a, a degree of receptiveness that this could be of value to all of us. One thing I would be looking out for is how do we think about this in the context of housing? Right. Again, shared agendas. <laughs> we have a housing crisis in our city, so I would be looking for ways. And, and the U.S. is doing this now, too. Right. They're integrating the housing and the climate agenda very closely. So I would be looking for that. I would be putting a, a lens on all housing proposals to look at sort of the climate impacts as a non-negotiable. Like it's not a special program. That's what I would be looking for. And so I would be looking for with any major project. What is the governance? Who's being sort of brought to the table to evaluate the ongoing impacts of this kind of work. I would be looking for dollars allocated for trust building. So, you know, I, I think a lot about how in the private sector, clients get taken to hockey games and restaurants and <laughs> to, to build trust, especially in the in the management consulting space. You know, they, they take their clients out for these lovely meals and all these different events. And I just don't understand why that logic doesn't extend to anything in the social sector, where it's like, we have to pay for trust building too. We need to spend time with folks who don't often spend time together and learn about each other. So I would be looking in budgets to see if you're doing a project that is like, you know, an organization and a community working together, is there established trust? And if there isn't, how are you planning to, to build that trust? How much time have you allocated? And I would be asking, why not more? Why not more time? Why are you trying to do this so quickly? How are you going to do these community roundtables in two months? That's a very ambitious trust building process. And I want to learn how you do that if that's the case. So I'd be looking for those components. Well, thank you, Zara, for sharing those aspirations and hopes with us today. And it was a real pleasure to have you on the Edge of Energy. Thanks for having me. On this podcast, we're taking our listeners to the Edge of Energy. We want to talk about what's happening with the global energy transition now but we also want a sneak peek into future innovations. Can you talk about solutions like geothermal energy? And am I getting this right? The fact that you can now capture carbon in concrete? 
Yeah, I, I, geothermal is a is a proven technology, but it, its deployment has not been as fast as as I would like to see. We're talking about taking drills and drilling holes into the ground and pulling heat out, also putting heat back in in the summer, right? And 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 balancing the two, but it's the most efficient way to heat a building. It's also low carbon because the electricity we use in in most in eighty percent of electricity in Canada is already low carbon. So geothermal has tremendous potential. Yes, there's upfront costs. There's ways to mitigate that through different types of arrangements with the geothermal drilling company. And you know, there's been a lot of competition in that sector in the last few years. And if if you have a project and you want geothermal, you can now get a few really qualified bidders. And that helps de-risk it for a developer, right? They can see proven project experience. They know they're going to get what they pay for. So geothermal has tremendous potential. And, in, you know, in some areas of Canada, it's our best shot, shot for decarbonizing our heat because it's too cold to use air source heat pumps in some of the climate zones in this country. So if, if you're anywhere outside of Vancouver or parts of Nova Scotia, geothermal is the only way you're going to be able to get 100% of your heating on a heat pump. And car- on the carbon capture side, it's true we've been, we've been emitting carbon for quite a while and we are going to have to start pulling some of that out of the air. And there is technology being developed to do that. The challenge is what do we do with that carbon, right? And there are really innovative ways emerging. And I think one of the ones that has me the most excited is the idea of sequestering carbon in concrete. And there is a few different technologies out there. You can inject CO2 into the concrete when it cures. You can also use carbon capture and create uh, calcium carbonate and start replacing aggregate with that. So if we can actually get the carbon of our concrete down to the point where we're storing more carbon in the concrete than is emitted when we manufacture that, it becomes a carbon sink. And, you know, until our materials are carbon sinks, we're never going to build ourselves out of this problem. But if we can make our materials a carbon sink, we can start building buildings and turning them into carbon storage devices. We can build roads and turn those into carbon storage devices, any infrastructure, right? And bar none, concrete is the material that gets built the most. Uh, We pour a lot of concrete in Canada and the world. So the concrete industry has been doing tremendous things to innovate in the last few years, but I'm really excited for what's going to happen in the future. And I, I, I do believe by 2050, we will have carbon storing concrete. Thanks for sitting in with us today, Finn. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Leslie, thanks for joining us on the show this week. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and so much fun. Leslie Wu is a leader with over two decades of experience building sustainable communities and shaping urban growth in the greater Toronto area. Leslie's experience in the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors, and as a planner, architect, and community activator, will help advance Civic Action's mission to boost civic engagement and build better cities. Finn McDonald is a manager of the Zero Carbon Building Program at the Canada Green Building Council. As an expert in zero carbon design and operations, he has been instrumental in the broad adoption of the program and driving reductions in the carbon footprints of buildings through collaboration with industry, governments, utilities, and other stakeholders. He has delivered sustainability consulting services for various projects related to carbon accounting, energy benchmarking, and the green building rating system. Zara Ibrahim is the CEO and co-founder of Monumental. She's a public interest designer and strategist focused on deep community-led approaches to policy, infrastructure, and service design. She also serves as an executive advisor to Deloitte Canada on civic innovation. She was founder and leader of Architects, 
Canada's first human-centered design firm. She is a professor at the University of Toronto and formerly taught at OCAD-U, while also helping to lead some of Canada's most ambitious participatory infrastructure and policy programs. That's it for this episode of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all of those who helped put the show together this week. Mihira Lashman, Angela Misri, Camille Hemming, Sheena Rossiter, and of course, Scotiabank. Look for episode number four on your favorite podcasting app, where we'll explore how the world is reducing its dietary footprint. We'll look at farmers, their land use, and the value of eating locally. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.